I next met with Dr. Ed Kim for an ASCO update on lung and head and neck cancer. And to begin, he commented on perhaps the most discussed non-small cell lung cancer paper, an update of a trial evaluating erlotinib alone versus platinum-based chemo as first-line treatment of patients with EGFR tumor mutations. The URTAC study was a large prospective study in which patients in Spain were tested for EGFR mutations. And essentially what they were looking at was testing folks who had the classical mutations, exons 19 or 21, and were treated with either frontline therapy with erlotinib or platinum-based doublets. Essentially, it was a study to see if you could have similar or better efficacy with the use of a specific inhibitor. Again, this was using erlotinib, an EGFR inhibitor, in a special sort of personalized population, being the EGFR mutation patients. This study was very similar to how the IPASS design was that was reported by Tony Mock. So the primary analysis, again, was progression-free survival. They did enroll 174 patients. This was the data that had been presented previously and was presented by Raphael Rizel at ASCO was an update of the progression-free survival. Without getting too specific into all of the data, the update continued to show a very impressive hazard ratio of 0.37. Previously, it had been 0.42. There was no update in survival, but again, what we've seen time and time again in these studies where we know that crossover exists and that these are, again, highly responsive populations, is that we can now say in a Western population, as well as in the Asian population we knew before, those patients who harbor EGFR mutations in their tumors do benefit from a quality of life standpoint, but also from a response rate and a progression-free survival standpoint by starting with an EGFR TKI upfront. And as you say, you know, you sort of heard this story before, We have even to the point now that I guess ASCO and NCCN has sort of blessed this with guidelines. But does this mean that physicians should be in a situation, if they're going to see non-small cell lung cancer, that they need to figure out a way to get an EGFR mutation test done, particularly in a non-smoker, before they make a decision? I can speak to my own practice, and we can try to extrapolate that idea. I do believe it is important for a patient, especially if they don't have an impending disease burden in which they're symptomatic, where we have to start treatment right away. We do know it can take two to three weeks to get the EGFR testing, and part of that is also to mobilize the tissue. But it emphasizes two things. One, we need good amounts of tissue up front when we diagnose these patients, because there are now several tests including the ALK test as well as the EGFR mutation test that can make a meaningful difference to a patient when treated up front. I know that if I had a preference and if I knew I had a mutation, then I would want to be treated with a pill for 12 to 18 months as opposed to starting on intravenous chemotherapy. I think patients can benefit from it. I think it's an extra step for physicians, but it's one that we have to make a step forward in. If the delay is because there is not enough tissue or it lingers on three, four, five weeks, I think we have to weigh the risk and the benefit. And certainly we don't want to leave patients untreated for frontline chemotherapy per se. Now, what about the smoker? I mean, there are reports of people with EGFR mutations who smoke, who are current smokers, who respond to EGFR TKIs. Do you think every patient with an adenocarcinoma should have this test? 
you'll hear a range of different conclusions to that. Some people believe every patient, including squamous as well as other histologies, should be tested. I think in an ideal world, we would like to test all these patients. We do, however, know that there are limitations to our practice and what the system can hold. I think aside from the smoking status, we look at histology. And if someone does have a non-squamous, specifically an adenocarcinoma, regardless of whether they're smoking or not, we should try and test them. Clearly, if your capacity at your specific community site or center is less, you can start to narrow down those patients. But frankly, smoking is so prevalent, or the history of smoking is so prevalent, that again, a lot of people are going to have some smoking history, and those will have mutations as well. Maybe you can comment on abstract 7505 by David Spiegel looking at METMAB and explain what METMAB actually is and what they found. So Dr. Spiegel presented some data, again, some we've heard before on METMAB. And again, this is an antibody that targets a C-MET pathway. And so we know that MET can be amplified. Its ligand is HGF. So we do know that it has some growth and contribution to lung cancer and other cancers to be developed. There's also theories that, in fact, MET may also cause resistance or other potentiating carcinogenic properties with different patients due to different treatments, especially erlotinib. So this was an interesting study. It was a phase two study, again, using erlotinib as the standard of care in a second and third line population after chemotherapy. And they added the METMAB in addition to erlotinib. And so patients were stratified both ways. And there were also people who were allowed crossover. So again, a progression-free survival endpoint. And we're more and more seeing progression-free survival as being a meaningful endpoint in lung cancer. And I think in any cancer where you have multiple lines of therapy, you really have to look in that direction. What made this study very nice and why there is so much promise behind this drug particularly is that they predefined an IHC score ahead of time. And they didn't do it retrospectively. It was already planned. They wanted to look at those patients who had met positivity versus those who were negative. And so that was a very nice aspect of the study. And can you do FISH or amplification on this also, or did they do that? So they used an IHC-type scoring. You can measure MET several ways, but this was a specific test that they predefined up front. And what fraction of patients with non-small cell or adeno or non-smokers or whatever have this increase in MET? So you can see up to actually 50% of patients who can have a positivity on this test. Again, as you start looking at different histological subtypes, you can see some different results. But anywhere between 35 and 50% of patients will have sort of this MET positivity. So what do they find? So in the study, 52% of the patients were MET positive by this test, this sort of IHC score. It was nice because 93% of the patients in the study had tissue. And so again, predefined as a secondary or other objective, they did collect tissue. And what were the results? Well, typical if when you look into an intent-to-treat population and don't look at any specific marker we see sort of the same results as we always have. Again, overall survival had a hazard ratio of 0.8. The median survival was 8.9 versus 7.4. That was with the addition of the MetMab with erlotinib. 
and that was overall survival, we might be excited about something like that a few years ago. However, the PFS was not in favor of Metmab or Lotnib. It was 2.2 versus 2.6. But what was very exciting was when you actually took those patients who had Met positivity and looked at their PFS and overall survival. And now this is where we can get excited. Again, half those patients having Met positivity, now we have an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.37 and the survival was more than 12 months versus three and a half months, essentially. And those patients who had progression-free survival, the hazard ratio was 0.53, again, with an almost doubling of the progression-free survival. So I think when we look at studies like this, and there are other drugs that do target MET and that pathway, it makes us more excited because there's a specific test. It's not just two drugs versus one drug and trying to look at it in a general unselected population and not one that's predominantly defined just by histology either. We're looking at now molecular characteristics and trying to assess that. And I don't see that they reported EGFR mutations or smoking status. Was this kind of an unselected population? Well, they did test for patients with EGFR mutations oh, yeah. no, and right. KRAS, but they didn't use that necessarily as a stratification variable. They did have smoking status there, but again, this is one of those tests in which they are going to look at all comers and base it more on the molecular test as opposed to the other characteristics that are available. Right, and I see that, you know, it looks like you know, 11 or 13% of these patients had EGFR mutations, so it's really kind of an unselected population. I mean, do you look at this as essentially MetMab versus nothing? I mean, is erlotinib part of this, do you think? I think based on the preclinical data that was generated, originally CMET seemed to be something that would help overcome resistance to erlotinib, and that was how a lot of these drugs were developed. What you're seeing here is that there seems to be an additive or synergistic effect with erlotinib, but again, in a specific population, not typical to how we previously described these lung cancer cell lines and doing experiments by additivity or synergistic. So I guess we should note this was a randomized phase two, not a huge study, 100 plus patients, and I'm guessing there are phase three going on now. Yeah, the company is actively planning a phase three. I think if you were to ask most lung cancer experts, this is a very interesting compound. It's clearly not something that we would be applying into the community at this time, but the whole principle of having enough tissue, again, I cannot repeat this enough, and I'm sorry if I sound like a broken record, enough tissue up front to test folks for these things, whether it's a MetMab IHC score or whether it's an EGFR mutation, extremely important in lung cancer these days. So there were several papers talking about crizotinib, a pretty interesting topic over the last couple of years, particularly an oral presentation by Alice Shaw, but there was also another one, abstract 7514 and 7515, looking at other aspects of crizotinib and ALK-positive non-small cell. Can you comment on sort of how that all came together? Well, we've heard the information from Alice Shaw, and they've certainly done quite a bit of pioneering work. And hopefully will lead to an indication in patients with ALK-positive tumors in lung cancer that we can have this drug available for them. The incidence of ALK-positivity is, again, on the lower side, anywhere between 5 and 10%, depending on how you enrich your population. But some of the questions that have come up are interesting ones, and I'm glad they're trying to at least look forward and make these decisions now. One of the things we learned later about EGFR mutations, for instance, was that these patients generally had an overall good prognosis. 
that if you were treated with chemo or with a TKI, you did pretty well either way. And that was some of the data that I reported with interest and other groups have reported, such as IPASS and your tech, as we talked about. Also, that EGFR mutation was a good prognostic factor. So what is ALK? Is ALK a poor prognostic factor? Is it a good prognostic factor? How do patients with chemotherapy and ALK positivity do? And these are the questions that they're trying to address. It's not perfect because these can't be prospective studies and the crizotinib or other ALK inhibitors are not FDA-approved drugs, so patients can't necessarily get that when they go off study. But what they did show in several of these abstracts was that ALK overall is a poor prognostic factor. They also showed that those patients who were treated with chemotherapy who were ALK positive didn't do all that well. But I think it's difficult to do a survival analysis on those folks, especially when there's not the availability in a standard treatment to be treated with a crizotinib per se. So again, we're not sure how that survival would hash out per se. But I do think this is a very interesting pathway. It's going to be one of the major discoveries in lung cancer. And if the drugs get approved for these patient populations, will represent a small but significant paradigm shift in how we treat patients. Yeah, another thing that George brought up was in some cases, these anti-oncogene addiction strategies don't last too long. He used the example of vemurafenib in melanoma, which of course we see tons of responses on, but they don't seem to last too long. How about the length of response with crizotinib and alk-positive disease, and also Alice Shaw's attempt to kind of look at survival? It's been overall pretty impressive as far as the amount of response and the duration of which these tumors tend to keep their disease stability or response. And so I've been personally very impressed by the data that I've seen with that. That being said, we've already seen development of crizotinib refractory settings with different diseases, and so people are thinking about this. However, we are talking about five, less than 10% of lung cancer patients that are going to have this, and we're going to have to figure out how we can justify larger screening efforts. And again, this going back to the Mark Chris abstract of the Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium, we need to be centralized. We struggled to get patients onto crizotinib at our institution because we had to screen 100 patients to put four or five on. And that becomes very tough. It becomes very difficult. And there's a lot of man hours that need to go into that. We can't be doing that for each individual study, especially if we're now going to look at 4 to 5 to 6% subsets of lung cancer. We've got to figure out a way to centralize this on a panel so that we can identify these folks. I like your comment on abstract 7510. We've seen a number of studies over the last two, three years looking at maintenance therapy. And this year we had the big Paramount phase three study. What did that look at and what did it find? So the Paramount study is something that actually our community doctors can use as a little bit of a validation. When we knew that Pemetrexid was approved for maintenance, One of the big issues was that pemetrexid with platinum was not an approved frontline agent at the time. So there was this theory of switch maintenance that would occur. And that's a term that was coined by the NCCN guidelines in which you would start with a platinum doublet for four cycles. And then after, if a patient had disease stability, you would switch to a different drug. And the available drugs are usually erlotinib or pemetrexid. And so that's what we term switch maintenance. When we look at the setting of a patient treated with Avastin-based chemotherapy, or Bevacizumab, for instance, 
those patients get platinum doublet plus bevacizumab, and then they would continue the bevacizumab if the disease was stable after either four or six cycles of therapy. That was termed continuation maintenance. What the main question of Paramount was to look at was how good or effective would continuation maintenance be with pemetrexid? So these patients were treated with cisplatin and pemetrexid up front for four cycles, and after they'd achieved disease stability, would continue either pemetrexid by itself as a continuation maintenance or would go to a placebo. And so it mimicked the study that was presented previously and published in The Lancet, only now looking at continuing pemetrexid throughout one's therapy, both in frontline and in maintenance. Can you talk about what they reported? So they saw consistent results similar to their previous phase three studies. The survival numbers were, again, improved, as were the progression-free survivals, although not as dramatic as their previous studies. The PFS, as assessed by investigators, was 4.1 versus 2.8 months, and the independent PFS was 3.9 versus 2.6. Again, both were statistically significant. I think it gave some people validation that, in fact, you could start with a pemetrexid-based doublet with platinum up front and then continue the pemetrexid after four cycles of doublet chemotherapy. Some other folks said it's not as good as doing switch maintenance. I think we're always going to have a debate there. But I think the important part of Paramount did show that it was safe to give, that it still showed a benefit in PFS and overall survival, and it's an acceptable standard in addition to other ways we could treat patients. Yeah, I thought it was kind of interesting in a way that, you know, just continuation of the same drug would actually, it really gets into duration of therapy in a sense. You know, the community oncologists have had more of a sense of this than those of us in academia, and they're the ones who would want to try and continue to push the platinum doublet, such as paclitaxel and carboplatin. I would see patients being treated for five, six, seven, even 10 cycles of therapy. We know now that that's not the right thing to do with a platinum doublet because of the side effects that add up. You're talking about drugs now like pemetrexid, which are easier tolerated, very easy to give once every three weeks, and don't really have a lot of dose-limiting toxicities such as neuropathy or other things. Now, we're able to deliver these types of drugs for longer periods of time. And I think it validates that theory. And I can tell you, I was not a personal big believer of maintenance, but I do it now in that continuing to treat somebody with something seems to help. What do you do in the, actually, the patient who's BEV eligible? What tends to be your initial doublet and what tends to be your maintenance? So in a BEV-eligible patient, I will still administer bevacizumab. As you know, there's still some debate out there. Some people like to go with cisplatin and pemetrexid without the BEV and use that adenocarcinoma subset. I will still use platinum and bevacizumab with pemetrexid in a BEV-eligible patient. So that's carboplatin, pemetrexid, BEV. I will go four cycles of this. And then I can say, Neil, it gets a little bit dicey after four cycles. I will sometimes go with just bevacizumab afterwards, depending on how robust a patient looks as far as how they're tolerating side effects. In some patients who are tolerating it very well and still having a good response to the therapy, I have gone sometimes with the point break strategy, which is using pemetrexid with bevacizumab and doublet maintenance. We, of course, don't have that data yet. We expect it later this year, but that is something that I do in some of my patients. 
What about the paper looking at cetuximab with concomitant radiation therapy? Obviously, a lot of interest in that because of head and neck. So this was a study that was reported by the investigators in which they looked at, again, stage three locally advanced patients who were eligible to receive, again, cetuximab with radiation. And that was the combination that was given. Patients were given external beam radiation, and then there was a consolidation phase afterwards of three cycles with cetuximab, carboplatin, and paclitaxel. It was a single-arm study, and they were looking for overall survival and response rate as well as PFS. There were some EGFR biomarkers that were studied. We, of course, recognize that cetuximab has some very good radiosensitizing qualities, and we've seen this both in RTOG lung studies as well as in head and neck studies where it is FDA-approved with radiation. What they showed was it was feasible, that the survivals were interesting and very much comparable to other chemoradiotherapy regimens. The consolidation chemotherapy sort of allowed you to give cetuximab by itself with radiation, and thus you were at least covering a patient with chemotherapy. And I still think in lung, we're going to be a little hesitant in not giving any type of systemic chemotherapy, especially in locally advanced disease. And that, again, they looked at EGFR fish, and perhaps there might be some benefit there, but I think we have to wait for the larger randomized studies with fish with EGFR to rule anything out. Clearly, it would be really nice, a la what we've done in head and neck, is to find drugs that may serve as replacements to heavier-dose chemotherapy. We know that that's usually the rate-limiting problem in giving chemotherapy with radiation, If we could find drugs or even lesser intensive regimens that still served very good as radiosensitizers, maybe in specific populations, then I think we're starting to make some progress. We've learned that it's hard to give higher dose radiation and perhaps maybe it's not as effective as we thought it would be. So trying to optimize the radiation with the right concurrent strategy with systemic therapy is really the direction we need to go. I think what we've seen in both of these abstracts is a desire to want to combine the radiation with something perceived as less toxic while also giving chemotherapy to make sure that we're not under-treating patients. Now, this is, you know, a phase two study, but where are we in terms of other data sets looking at the same question of cetuximab with stage three disease and also in terms of phase three data? Yeah, there was an interesting abstract a couple years ago that our group and the RTOG presented, which was using chemotherapy with cetuximab with radiation, that randomized phase three is either almost completed or is getting close through RTOG in lung cancer. I do believe that cetuximab probably has the best chance of getting an approval in locally advanced therapy with radiation, just because it's very strong radiosensitizing properties. We've seen a little bit of disappointment in head and neck, and we will comment on that a little later, but certainly the properties of cetuximab, the ease of administering it, as long as you don't live in that near southern belt where you get a lot of hypersensitivity, it makes it an attractive choice. What about the phase two study looking at erlotinib with radiation therapy after chemo radiation? This study that was presented by Ritsuko Kamaki came from our group, actually, and was part of our Department of Defense grant, year four. So year five was battle, and everybody talks about battle, as you mentioned before. And this was our year four grant. And part of it was to look at how a TKI does with chemoradiation. And 
I can tell you there was some consternation when we first were running this study because of the interaction perceived of a small molecule TKI with chemotherapy. However, we did conduct the study, we did mandate tissue on folks, and we saw some very interesting results. And again, our radiation group tends to not easily impress, but this was something that I think impressed many of us. Whether it's moved forward into a randomized effort is a different question. But the phase two trial showed a one-year overall survival of 84% and a median overall survival of almost 26 months. Again, this was very good for a phase two study, and that's what we have to emphasize. It was a phase two study, and that perhaps treating patients with EGFR mutations might help even more with erlotinib. And again, getting to the question of if you have a patient who has an EGFR mutation now in the stage three setting, again, this is not routinely done or tested, do you need to give them the high-dose or weekly chemotherapy, or can you give them just erlotinib, for instance, with the radiation? And I think this is the next generation of questions, Neil, that are going to be asked and highly relevant to the community oncologist because it will incorporate testing. And I think that's what we need to do now in our curable cancers. And I guess only five of these patients had EGFR mutations. So, you know, as you say, a small phase two study, it's kind of hard to say. But, I mean, would you expect moving forward that that's where the benefit's going to be? I think specific to TKIs, we have to look at that. As long as we don't incur too much toxicity with the TKI or the molecule with radiation, and this could apply not just to EGFR mutations, it could apply to ALK translocation patients that we identify in the stage three setting, it's going to be difficult to test because we just don't have as many of those patients as we do in the metastatic setting. But if we are moving truly toward a treatment paradigm of personalizing therapy for lung cancer, what we've learned from our stage four data or advanced cancer data is that these mutations, when given with specific drugs that inhibit them, certainly improve progression-free survival outcome, they improve response rate outcome, but they also improve quality of life and lessen toxicity. And especially in a locally advanced patient, if you can accomplish that by having equal efficacy as that with chemotherapy, then we've made a good step forward. So let's finish out talking about head and neck cancer and beginning with the RTOG presentation by Dr. Eng. So Dr. Eng presented a large study on behalf of the RTOG. This was a study very close to us. We had a lot of involvement in this study from MD Anderson, and this was 0522. This was the follow-on study to what Dr. Bonner published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing radiation with cetuximab was superior to radiation alone. This next step involved radiation with cisplatin with or without cetuximab. So it asked that next question. There was a lot of discussion up front as to whether a third arm should have been included in this study, which would have been no cisplatin and just cetuximab with the radiation. There was some hesitation because it might slow down accrual, it may not answer the question we want to see, and so the decision at that time was to go with two arms. I think looking back on the results, we would love to have had that third arm. So this study was a large study, randomizing those patients that we discussed, the target sample size was 940 patients, and it was, again, to look at whether you had superior progression-free survival with the addition of cetuximab to cisplatin and radiation in locally advanced head and neck cancer patients. And what did they find? 
So to many people's disappointment on the overall and progression-free survival, we didn't find too much of a difference. In fact, the hazard ratio for PFS was 1.05, and the hazard ratio for OS was 0.87. What we saw was cisplatin, the two-year rate of progression-free survival was 64%. With cisplatin and cetuximab and radiation, it was 63%. When we look at overall survival, these were 78 and 83% respectively. So a little disappointing that we did not see the increased efficacy when adding cetuximab to radiation and now platinum-based therapy. This has caused folks to take a look at subsets here, and there may be some interesting subsets when we look at HPV or P16 status in these folks. The planned trial in reaction to this now, as this will not become a standard of care, is to look at those patients who are HPV positive or P16 and randomize to either radiation alone or radiation plus cetuximab. And that trial is planned through RTOG. It'll be about an 800 patient study. How do you deal with this situation in your own practice? I never really jumped on the combination of cisplatin plus cetuximab with radiation in the locally advanced setting. What has changed a lot, especially in treatment of locally advanced head and neck cancer, is the emergence of induction chemotherapy. And this was the data that Marshall Posner published in the New England Journal of Medicine. When we consider patients for induction, these are patients who generally have bulkier or multiple nodal sites, and so that's what we term N2B, B as in boy, or greater. Not everybody, but those are the patients we consider. And what we found very effective is to give patients induction chemotherapy, and then after three cycles, as long as they've had a decent response, they go on to radiation. And at that point, that's where combining something with radiation, we discuss a little bit more. Some folks will follow the regimen originally outlined by Dr. Posner and use AUC of 1.5 of carboplatin. I can tell you from my own experience, sometimes I'll use cetuximab as concurrent therapy, and other times maybe weekly cisplatin. So there are ways to sort of variant that, but the era of high-dose chemotherapy and radiation up front still exists, and it still is a question that we need to answer going head-to-head against induction chemotherapy. But again, induction chemotherapy with TPF has certainly made a large impact clinically in these patients. What about this trial looking at erlotinib prior to surgery for squamous cell cancer? I will have to disclose that I was an author on this abstract that Dr. William did report. This was our pilot study of a short course of erlotinib. Again, the TKI prior to surgery for patients who had squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck. What we were looking for was actually a biological question, and that's why the trial was only 40 patients. We have only five more patients we're going to enroll into this study, but we looked at two different doses, 150 versus 300. In fact, we used 200 and 250 just based on FDA recommendations, and we wanted to see how much biomarker modulation could exist, and the perfect population to get tissue pre and post is a patient population that's going to surgery. From the head and neck standpoint, it's easy to access tissue, and so this was a perfect population of patients to treat. Nobody really thought that erlotinib would have much of an efficacy standpoint because when they tested this drug in the recurrent metastatic setting, it only had a 4% response rate. To our surprise, 
treating patients for a median of 20 days produced responses in 25 to 30 percent of them. And these are resist CT criteria responses. More impressively, in the oral cavity patients, we saw a 35 percent response rate with a single agent TKI given for three weeks. That was amazing. We cannot comment anything about survival or progression-free survival because the endpoint was surgery here, and patients usually were treated up till a few days prior to their surgery, and we did not extend the treatment past that. But it really opened our eyes to the fact that we might have activity, especially in those patients. We had two patients who had a resist complete response. And that's amazing to think that you could get a complete response in a head and neck cancer patient with three weeks of therapy. We're talking EGFR mutation days in lung or ALK treatment. So we're going to investigate these tissues and try and find what's the driver. Remember, these are squamous cancers. These are not adenos. There are no mutation drivers that we know of in these tissues. So why would patients experience complete responses? And so this is the fascinating scientific question that can come up with small studies like this. And, you know, you guys had a pretty cool-looking waterfall plot there, too, in terms of it looks like most of these patients had some response. They did, and it was amazing, and that is why the enrollment really picked up on this study, and we put 36 patients on in this study in one year. And so our head and neck surgeons were very much a pivotal part of this study and were definitely encouraged by placing patients on this. I can tell you, Neil, in those patients, and I saw many of these patients personally, that did not experience a resist response that were still trending downward, as you say, as far as the response they experienced very good quality of life aspects. The first patient I put on this study who was on pain medication and had a lot of pain and suffering from his tumor within one week was off pain medicine and feeling a lot better. So very encouraging. Any clues in terms of the dose? So we didn't see a lot of difference in the dose. So we used the high dose, especially in those patients who are currently smoking, because we know that active smoking can interfere with the pharmacokinetics of erlotinib. But we didn't see a big difference from an efficacy standpoint. Now, we are still going to look at the tissue, a la the primary endpoint, which was modulation of phospho-AKT, to see if we saw different downstream modulation based on dose. But right now, the question of efficacy based on resist doesn't seem to be dose-dependent. Impact of smoking on the pharmacology of erlotinib. I'm not sure I've heard that one. Well, we know that patients who actively smoke and take erlotinib actually have a higher metabolism of the drug, and they have lower levels. So within the package insert, it's actually in there. It's based on a small pharmacodynamic study that if you are an active smoker, you're allowed to escalate the dose from 150 all the way up to 300 based on tolerability for those people who are actively smoking. Amazing. I never can tell when I'm hearing something that everybody knows or nobody knows. I never heard that. Yeah, it's actually on the label. Not a lot of people are very excited about escalating the dose of erlotinib for sure up to 300. That's quite a bit. But I will tell you that the perception out there is that erlotinib doesn't work in people who are actively smoking. We know that actually actively smoking doesn't just affect drugs like erlotinib, it affects drugs that are systemic chemotherapies as well. These studies have been there for 20 plus years with drugs like CPT-11 and others where they have interference with drug metabolism. That's fascinating. What fraction of patients in your own practice continue to smoke? 
I saw one today, so I'll have to tell you, it's probably a good 10 to 15% of patients who are actively smoking, and that includes both head and neck and lung. I think more people in head and neck still smoke, but what we are seeing, similar trends in both tumor types, is that we're seeing a younger patient, we're seeing a patient who didn't have a history of smoking, especially in head and neck cancer. These are those HPV-positive tumors that are happening in young people, that are happening in the oropharynx. It's really scary, as maybe I'm just getting older, but now I'm seeing more patients who are much younger than me, and it is pretty scary to see that. We see the same phenomenon happening in lung cancer as well.